Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. We're the surgical education team from Cleveland Clinic, and we're back with another Behind the Knife episode on surgical education. I'm Judith French. I'm the PhD education scientist for the Department of General Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm Jeremy Lipman. I'm the chair of GME and designated institutional officer at Cleveland Clinic and former general surgery program director. And I'm Amy Hahn, general surgery resident and surgical education research fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. Today, we'll be discussing a hot topic in surgical education, entrustable professional activities, also known as EPAs. An EPA refers to a unit of professional practice that is specific to a clinical practice that is observable and measurable. EPAs fit under the competency-based framework for formally assessing entrustment decisions and readiness for autonomy based on the trainee's knowledge, skills, and attitudes required for individual EPA. Each EPA has surgery milestones, 2.0s, competencies, and sub-competencies mapped to it to ensure a more holistic approach to competency-based evaluation. Entrustability decision for each EPA can be represented by different levels. Only observe, execute with direct observation, execute with indirect observation, supervise from distance in an independent practice. By reviewing performance data based on multimodal assessments from multiple assessors, a trained committee generates a global entrustability decision for each learner for each EPA. Particularly relevant for surgical education, EPAs can be applied in assessment of not only procedures and operations, but also evaluation and management of disease processes. The American Board of Surgery has identified five initial EPAs for general surgery residents for, in their pilot. Evaluation and management of a patient with inguinal hernia, evaluation and management of a patient with right lower quadrant pain, evaluation and management of a patient with gallbladder disease, evaluation and management of a patient presenting with blunt or penetrating trauma, and providing general surgery consultation to other healthcare providers. Please refer to the article Entrustable Professional Activities in General Surgery, Development and Implementation by Dr. Karen Brazel et al., published in Journal of Surgical Education in 2019 for an example of an EPA and the vignettes that depict each level of entrustment. The ABS has piloted these five EPAs at participating residency programs with plans for full implementation for all general surgery residency programs, starting with the incoming residents entering in the fall of 2023. Based on their recent announcement, ABS plans to provide faculty training programs and to develop technology-based platforms to assist residency programs with providing, quote, time-efficient, feedback-oriented assessment for their residents. Meanwhile, additional EPAs are being developed by various working groups represented by key stakeholders in surgical education. So to discuss EPAs in the context of surgical education, we've invited Dr. Karen Brazel to join us. She is one of the core leaders in drafting and piloting EPAs for the American Board of Surgery. Dr. Brazel is a professor of surgery and program director of the General Surgery Residency at Oregon Health and Sciences University, where she also serves as vice chair for education and professional development and assistant dean for graduate medical education. 
Dr. Brazel is a nationally renowned leader across diverse areas in surgery through her leadership roles in national organizations like the American College of Surgeons, the American Board of Surgery, and the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. Her expertise and research interests in surgical education are represented in her work in both undergraduate and graduate education through these different initiatives. She's been recognized numerous times for her endeavors through prestigious accolades at the national level, and we're just thrilled to have her on the show with us today for this discussion on EPAs in surgical education. So to start off, Dr. Brazel, uh, what was the impetus behind the American Board of Surgery's decision to adopt EPAs in surgical education? The mission of the ABS is uh, to serve both the public and the profession. And based on the uh, work that went into developing the pilot and the results of the pilot, um, believes that using EPAs as an evaluative framework to shift the focus to competency-based training and education rather than remaining in a fixed time-based framework does this best. It will further ensure that those who have completed training do have entrustable competence in the core areas of general surgery when taken alongside other uh, assessment methods. Okay, so you mentioned the competency-based medical education. Um, we're also in the midst of Surgery Milestones 2.0. So thinking about EPAs, how do the EPAs fit in with those two frameworks? For sure, it is really important to make sure that we're not just adding one more thing for already overburdened educators to do. EPAs uh, do map to milestones, and the upcoming EPAs will be mapped to milestones 2.0. For the pilot EPAs, each EPA actually mapped to multiple milestones, and this will be the case for the full suite of EPAs. So with any uh, specific EPA, you will have assessed multiple milestones. So the EPA is considered then to be a formative or a summative assessment? So EPAs are both formative and summative. The formative aspect is given after any individual encounter. And really importantly, I think probably the most important in my mind, provides the resident with very specific information in a shared mental model on what to work on and improve to move to the next level of entrustability. From a summative standpoint, the EPAs can be used every six months by the Clinical Competency Committee as one piece of information that is used to both determine milestones as well as uh, determine advancement to the next uh, residency year. So if I'm a resident in a program that's using EPAs, what is this going to look like for me what am I going to see? How am I going to interpret that and make use of this information? Again, the, the most important thing is it provides a shared mental model and a way to provide structured or formalized feedback. And I think both residents and faculty should view the EPAs in that way. They really provide a shortcut and a richer conversation, um, a richer beginning to the conversation that today might begin, well, how many of these have you done? What would you like to concentrate on working on today? From a residency standpoint, uh, from a faculty standpoint, from a, from a program leadership standpoint, the conversation around entrustability can be particularly helpful when designing an improvement program for a resident that does seem to be struggling. 
And as a program director who has these, uh, you know, we're sort of have the benefit of seeing a lot of different uh, information coming in to help us to decide where the residents are along their training pathway. Um, and so how do we get that information to the other surgeons that the trainees are working with and get them to say like, okay, this, this trainee is entrustable in this area and, and can, can progress along the pathway versus the individual surgeons wanting to sort of reaffirm that on their own at each case. I would actually place uh, that conversation or the start of that conversation on the resident, supported by a lot of faculty development um, that is a part of rolling out the EPA project. To say, when I, uh, the last time I did this uh, procedure or took care of a patient with this problem, I was told that to move to the next level of entrustability, I needed to work on this aspect or display these behaviors. And that allows the faculty to concentrate on that behavior or that aspect of a case. Uh, Rather than thinking about the EPAs as a badge, well, I've moved to this level of entrustability. In actual fact, based on patient characteristics, complexity of comorbid conditions, complexity of the disease process, it's very possible that a resident may exhibit one level of entrustability on one day and a different level of entrustability on another day. And it's only by aggregating multiple, multiple, multiple EPAs that were delivered in a formative manner then a, that a summative picture can, uh, can emerge. That makes sense. Okay, so as we know, there is a heterogeneity of programs with regards to size. You have big programs, small programs. Let's focus on the small programs for a little bit here. So, How should EPAs be used in smaller programs where faculty work frequently with every resident? So that the argument can be made that each faculty determines for his or herself what level of entrustment they believe the resident has achieved. This actually highlights one of the key features of EPAs. Each EPA has specific behaviors that are associated with each level of entrustability that are that shared mental model understood by both faculty and residents. It's not enough for the faculty to to just determine entrustability, but equally important for the resident to know what behaviors are expected for them to move to the next level of entrustability without having to guess for each faculty they work with. Because I am willing to bet that even in a small program, if you asked a resident what behaviors they needed to exhibit for faculty X to entrust them with care of a patient or certain aspects of a case, they wouldn't be able to explicitly list them. And the EPAs provide that language. So those behaviors, those skills are written down and associated, explicitly associated with each level of entrustability. So then kind of going along the same thought of there are different residency programs with different characteristics out there with various sizes. Um, So it, it almost seems impossible that there is one plan that fits all for the programs in adopting the EPAs. Um, What sort of resources will be available for residency programs, for uh, professional development, as well as training the residents um, with this new rollout of EPAs? 
Faculty and resident development is a key step in the EPA program, and its importance really can't be overstated. There is an entire group that is working on faculty and resident development resources, and another group that is working on the technical aspects in terms of a delivery platform for these assessments. Uh, And there are residents that are on all of the groups that are moving forward in the uh, EPA project. So the writing groups, the resource development group, the technology assessment group. So both residents and faculty and educators are represented on the groups that are putting together all of the elements needed for the rollout of this project. I mean, it seems like just a ton of work has gone into this very thoughtful approach, and uh, we're certainly looking forward to seeing it. When you think about putting all this information together and coming up with these entrustability decisions, how does that happen? Where is this part of the Clinical Competency Committee? Is this a new committee that that we should be thinking about putting together? Uh, should there be resident involvement? What What do you think the idealized state of that looks like? That gets to the use of the the summative aspect of the EPAs, and certainly in the pilot. And I think going forward this was envisioned or this is envisioned to be in the domain of the CCC, the summative aspect. The formative aspect, I I firmly believe uh, EPAs enhance the feedback conversation and uh, make that both more transparent and easier to do. The summative aspect, I think the Clinical Competency Committee will have uh, all of the uh, data from the formative assessments and we'll be able to use that as well as to use uh, any other data that, that they might have. I uh, envision that the EPAs may significantly shorten end-of-rotation evaluations. So end-of-rotation evaluations might be able to focus on uh, aspects of the milestones that might not be well covered in the EPAs if there are uh, two or three milestones uh, that are not well covered. We're asking you to participate in this new assessment process, we need to be taking something off your plate um, because uh, all of us have too much to do. Well, that will certainly be hugely popular and uh, probably what we will open with here as we introduce the EPAs uh, when it's time. You know, another thing that came up was uh, thinking about EPAs beyond residency training. Uh, And I've heard some people talking about, do these become part of your uh, professional identity and professional uh, certification where I'm a colorectal surgeon, so maybe I maintain my my EPAs in the things that are relevant to me, but let my EPAs in managing pancreatic cancer and trauma and whatnot fall by the wayside because I just don't do those things anymore. Do you think there could be a a role for that down the road, sort of an expansion uh, beyond training? Well, certainly there are uh, EPAs that have been developed by the Fellowship Council, uh, and there are other groups that are looking. uh, The vascular surgeons are now looking at EPAs. Um, We have uh, pediatric surgery and colorectal surgery represented on uh, the uh, EPA scope group uh, that uh, is looking at the additional EPAs to supplement the pilot five. Once you achieve a level of unsupervised practice, there is still a lot of room between unsupervised practice and mastery. And when you look at uh, EPA curves, the, the threshold 
world of, of competence or unsupervised practice, there is still a lot of growth that happens beyond that curve. And there may be EPAs where uh, indirect supervision is the level uh, that is achieved in a, a fellowship EPA, and a resident might have achieved that even prior to uh, graduation from residency. I don't know that once out in practice, the, the concept of letting an EPA go is, is is a view of it as a as a certificate or a badge, and that's not that's not a lens that I use to view EPAs. I don't know that it would be significantly different from now. At the time you graduated from residency, were deemed competent for independent practice as a general surgeon, uh, and now as a colorectal surgeon, you have let things go. I would assume uh, that you don't do much uh, breast or pancreatic surgery now, although I don't know your specific practice. Um, but I don't think that would change if in the land of EPAs. If you don't continue to practice, we all know that uh, that skills atrophy over time. If you chose to retrain or re-career and uh, practice as a general surgeon, I think the EPAs might provide a framework that would allow you to retrain if you had let a particular aspect of your practice go. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, I think in that, looking at it through that lens makes a lot more sense. EPAs, you know, new assessment that we're creating here, eventually we have to start looking at the data that's going to be coming in based off this, both in the pilot and the data that comes in in the future, as you would with any new assessment. So how are you advising programs to gather that assessment data and what tools will be available to aid programs with that data collection? Yeah, so uh, for the pilot program, we encourage programs to innovate in the ways that they collected assessment data recognizing the variability in programs that did participate. And we recruited intentionally large programs, small programs, programs that had a lot of resources, programs that didn't have many resources. And we had everything from Google Docs to three by five cards to um, uh, homegrown apps to variation of uh, commercially available apps. Uh, the work from the pilot program is informing uh, the work of the group that is currently working on assessment tools and the data platform for the current project. Um, what we hope is, is something that is available and workable as well as scalable for all programs. Uh, and that would include the cost aspect uh, for a little to no cost. Uh, for the pilot, the individual EPAs, so those formative EPAs, those data remained at the local programs, and that is the, the vision going forward. And data collected centrally were only uh, the CCC uh, summative assessments. Uh, and I, I think that is really important. I don't think it is um, the board or any other central group's business about an individual resident assessment that could be tied to an individual patient. So we want to have that so that formative assessments can really stay formative and really be, be there to help the resident gain entrustability and gain competence. I think it was incredible that the pilot process was so thoughtfully thought out and um, included a wide variety of different programs um, with the anticipation that this is something that everyone will eventually have to um, implement um, 
we're kind of interested to know if there's any preliminary data or any sort of feedback from programs, uh, residents at the pilot programs in terms of how EPAs uh, function sort of on the ground during the pilot trial. Are you able to share with us any, any thoughts? So the pilot is complete and we learned a lot. We learned that having champions is important. Uh, one of the interesting things, we so we had five EPAs and we asked that each site uh, implement two. And so in some sites that meant that they were able to um, co-locate those two in a small group of faculty. And that decreases the, the burden of faculty development so that you can you only have to train a small number of faculty. But what we actually found was that um, although the investment up front uh, in terms of faculty development to do it on a broader scale, it is a little bit more in terms of uh, time and effort investment. It pays off on the back end because you really start to flip the switch that everybody starts thinking in entrustability language after that initial investment is easier to implement more than uh, trying to do it sort of in isolation. Um, we also found some, some places where, where things didn't work. And all of that uh, information, what worked, what didn't work, is being used by the working groups um, who are working on the specific EPAs, working on faculty and resident development, working on the tools, uh, as well as on working on the, the technology and the data collection platform. Uh, we're really excited to finally hear all the data and how uh, the results of the pilot trial. Um, so moving forward, uh, we thought it would be interesting to um, discuss some of these clinical scenarios to help our listeners um, think about how EPAs are utilized and how the uh, the assessment data from the EPAs can be interpreted by different um, subjects. So residents from a resident's perspective, from a faculty perspective, and even from the patient's perspective. So I'm going to first present um, a case where um, George is a PGY3 resident um, who has been in the surgical ICU for the last four weeks of his uh, rotation. During the rotation, he actively sought out opportunities to improve his procedural skills, especially uh, in performing bronchoscopies, because his next rotation is night flow. And when he talked to his co-residents, they had mentioned that he's going to be expected to perform um, certain procedures like bronchoscopies at night without supervision. Um, during his end of rotation feedback, um, he was told that he uh, he received a, a needs direct supervision uh, for his bronchoscopy EPA. Um, he doesn't quite agree with uh, this assessment, and he's nervous because um, he's going to have to call the staff who uh, would be available uh, to supervise him if he were in a in a, a situation where he would have to perform a bronchoscopy. So for George in this scenario, um, how would you help him interpret this EPA assessment and how would you um, advise him moving forward? Where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, so it would be unlikely that something as narrow as a bronchoscopy would be an EPA as the EPAs, uh, at, at least the EPAs that, that will be coming out in, in addition to the, the five pilots. Uh, are focused more broadly on care of diseases and conditions. It might be a part of an EPA focused on a critically ill patient. It's also 
I hope the faculty and resident development would have um, or been done in a way, such a way that this receiving at the end of rotation would not be when George had gotten this. It would have been at the end of caring for an individual patient, and he would have gotten multiple EPAs. However, given that change in context, I would advise the resident, advise George to say to a faculty that the last time he received feedback about his bronchoscopic skills, he was told that he needed to exhibit these specific behaviors in order to progress to the level of indirect supervision and ask the supervising faculty to comment specifically on whether they observe the behaviors that he outlined during the bronchoscopy. Whether the resident needs to call the faculty is dependent on the overall supervision policy of the, uh, of the residency program, GME program as a, as a whole, and the hospital. An EPA assessment, however, can only be completed if the faculty is there as it requires direct supervision and directly observable behaviors, uh, which are the source of the feedback. So what I'm gathering is that he probably, with typical uh, formative EPAs that should be given after each procedure that um, like a bronchoscopy that he performs, this sh- it shouldn't be a surprise that at the end of a rotation, he would be getting a summative um, EPA assessment that's not consistent with where he thought he was. That, in my mind, would be a failure of deployment of EPAs. And I also would hope that as a PGY3 resident, um, uh, if early on in his rotation, he had been uh, assessed as um, performing this procedure in the context of the care of a a patient with uh, pulmonary disease as needing direct supervision that uh, a plan would have been put into place to have helped him be at a a higher level of entrustability by the end of that rotation. I see. And then also framing the conversation with the assessment data about what steps need to be taken by him in order to get him to that next level uh, of, of entrustment. Exactly. And again, those um, those steps or those behaviors are very explicit and are written in every single EPA. So they're, they're not a mystery. So let's do another scenario. This one's talking a bit more about the faculty and hopefully give an opportunity to learn more about your recommendations for faculty development and how we're going to get the faculty on board. So we'll say Dr. Smith is a general surgery faculty at a affiliated smaller regional hospital uh, that doesn't always have residents with them and so may not have been part of our initial faculty development offerings that that most of the faculty will be part of as we roll out EPAs. And Pooja is one of our PGY2s who's out there working with him. And on the first day of her rotation, tells him that based on her EPAs thus far, she is at the direct supervision level when evaluating patients with gallbladder disease. And she knows that they're going to be seeing a ton of gallbladder disease on this rotation. Normally, she works with a senior resident and it hasn't been an issue, but now it's just her and the staff. And so she tells Dr. Smith, you know, I'm at direct supervision, so you're going to have to see all these patients with me. And Dr. Smith is just beside himself, uh, doesn't know what to do with this information. So, what, what are some strategies you would recommend as we develop faculty development programs around EPAs? 
to try to avoid this type of scenario. Yeah, and as someone who has a residency program where the residents do go to multiple uh, multiple sites, uh, that is one of the challenges with faculty development for sure, and and does highlight the need for this to be both faculty and resident development. I think again, it is really really important to separate. This is an ed, EPAs are an educational assessment tool. They, in the current environment, and maybe forever, but certainly in the current environment, they don't have anything to do with the rules or laws or faculty behavior about supervision. The only exception is that a faculty cannot fill out an EPA unless they were actually there because they the EPAs require the direct observation in order to see whether these outlined behaviors uh, or skills have been exhibited. So I would, in this situation, advise Dr. Smith to ask Pudra what behaviors she understands she needs to exhibit to move to the next level of entrustability. I would hope that at least once Dr. Smith would be willing as a faculty member, if, if not just in general curiosity about this new assessment that somehow he's never heard of, to accompany Pooja and provide feedback via an EPA, which she should be able to um, show him how to do on her phone. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And I think this Reframing is going to be important. Uh, you know, I'm sure people are coming at this new concept with a lot of different perceptions, and uh, part of the faculty, resident, and other development is going to be getting everyone to better understand uh, what this what this looks like. I, I do think there is a either a desire on from one group and a fear from another group that well, this means that we're going to be entrusting residents to be independent. Uh, at all different levels, and they're going to be going and doing procedures independently. No, this is not changing the laws and rules of supervision at all. It is just an assessment framework uh, and really needs to be separated from that. Well, now I don't have to um, uh, go and see the residents because they're interested in, uh, in director unsupervised practice. No, that's actually not what the EPAs say. All right. So we have one more stakeholder that we have not talked about, and that is from the patient's perspective. So it's 2 a.m. and Gail comes to the ED with a two-year-old son who has an anorectal abscess. It's the second time that her son has come to the ED for the same problem. A resident comes in to talk to her about her son's diagnosis and the plan for bedside incision and drainage. The resident tells her that he has received independent practice and has done many of these uh, procedures before. And he mentions the phrase EPAs. She has no idea what this means, but learns that he's only a second year surgery resident. So she recalls the last time that her son needed this procedure, a fifth year resident performed it. So she's not happy because she believes her son is receiving subpar care and wants to come back during the daytime. So thinking about this patient's mother, how do you help her understand the resident's EPA assessment and their ability to complete this procedure? 
we're a long way from this. <laughs> um, and again, EPAs aren't designed, at least in current time and current vision, to be used as a badge to say that they can independently practice. Um, I would not advise a resident to lead with that introduction, but to explain what needed to be done, just like they do now, uh, what their level of experience was, and ask the mother if she had any questions. Explain everything as they're proceeding and exactly what they would do now in terms of where the senior resident is, where the attending is, that, that doesn't change under an EPA framework. If the mother's uncomfortable, the mother should ask to, to speak to the supervising physician which again, where that supervising position is and, and their presence doesn't change in an EPA framework. Well, Dr. Brazel, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and helping us to get a better understanding about EPAs. Uh, it's a really exciting development. We're looking forward to seeing how this all rolls out moving forward. And I think that you've uh, helped our listeners and us to better understand what these are and how we can use them in our practice and how they differ from the badges and other assessments and, and ways of determining independent practice that we currently have. So we'd ask you just to give us a few take-home points from our discussion, our educational sign-out that our listeners can take with them as the, the key points about EPAs. Absolutely. I think... The important things to remember about EPAs are that they are formative and summative, and the formative aspect is, in my mind, the, the most important to help the residents move from one level of entrustability to the other. So formative and summative, but formative over summative, um, that they do not change the rules and um, uh, local policies about supervision. And in actual fact, the faculty have to be there to provide the feedback. So they're not a badge. They don't change the rules and laws of supervision. And lastly, that the, the goal of EPAs is actually to decrease the burden of assessment uh, and to make the make the feedback that is provided more meaningful. Perfect. Listen, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Dominate, Dominate education. education. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.